0: PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So, this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me, Michael Adams, in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to Aboriginal elders, past and present. This podcast episode contains historic newspaper quotations that constitute racist and homophobic hate speech. Listener discretion is advised. It's Sunday the 10th of December 1950, summer in Sydney, and while Aussies still have to worry about reds under the bed, new menaces to Australian society have just reared their ugly, shaggy heads. They are the bodgies and the widgies. The very words conjure slimy beasts emerging from a bog and biting insects flying up from some swamp. Yet bodgies and widgies aren't haunting the bush in the back of beyond. No, you can find them, dozens of them, writhing on the lawns above Bondi Beach. There's no way you can miss them. The bodgie, that's the male of the species, has long hair and he wears a zoot suit with draped coat and tight trousers. The widgie, that's the bodgie's female mate, has a ducktail haircut and she squeezes her sinful self into a tight low-cut dress. But worse, far worse than how they look is how they behave, or more to the point, how they misbehave. Every weekend, these bodgies and widgies cavort in delirious sex-crazed dance orgies. Bondi residents are shocked, Sydney's CIB has been alerted, and the Vice Squad is this very afternoon investigating. Bondi lifesaver Frank Jenkins tells the Daily Telegraph of the horrors that are happening behind the surf club while ordinary God-fearing Sydney siders are just trying to enjoy their Sundays. Quote, They behave most offensively at times. They passionately kiss a neck in the middle of the footpath. They always do this after their sex dances. Gangs of bodgies form a circle around a young couple who dance a type of suggestive burlesque jazz until they are exhausted. When the couple is too tired to continue dancing, another couple takes over, and so on until every couple has performed. When they have finished carrying on like whirling dervishes, they sink down on the grass. Frank Jenkins says that he and other lifesavers are thinking of turning hoses on these sex-crazed kids. God knows, something has to be done to stop these orgasmic orgiastic practices. I'm Michael Adams, and this is Forgotten Australia. In the last episode, we heard about Bondi legend, Aubrey Shackleton Laidlaw, who patrolled Australia's most famous strip of sand for close to 50 years. As a surf lifesaver, Orb rescued thousands of people, but as a beach inspector he outraged thousands more in the late 50s and early 60s with his aggressive enforcement of the bikini ban. Yet during Orb's tenure, he'd also feature in early skirmishes against the forerunners of the bodgies and widgies. As Mark Twain reckoned, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. We see this clearly in the mid 20th century birth of the Bodgies and Widgies. The moral panic that went with their eyes echoed the outrage from the previous century that left us with a distinctly Australian linguistic legacy. See, in the mid 1860s, many children who'd been born during the gold rush were despaired of as a doomed generation who signaled a dark future for Australia. Newspapers delighted in tut-tutting their clothes, their foul language, their smoking, their drinking, their disdain for authority, and their fondness for all sorts of crime. Initially, these youth were described as the boy nuisance, or the big boy nuisance. As far as labels went, these weren't very catchy. But once such offenders were renamed larrikins, well, their elders and betters really got their long johns in a knot. From 1870, and for decades that followed, journalists and editors, police and magistrates, clergymen and politicians thundered against the larrikins. Reactions even extended to the reintroduction of the Lash in Victoria. Now, some young larrikins, most notably Ned Kelly, did actually grow up to be real menaces to society. But the vast majority were merely asserting themselves as individuals engaging in mild forms of rebellion in speech, dress, and so on to differentiate themselves from their fuddy-duddy parents. Eventually the definition of larrikin would change. So it no longer denoted a dangerous criminal, but rather a lovable rogue. By the great depression of the 1930s, those once feared larrikins had themselves become fuddy-duddies and now they were wringing their arthritic hands about the rising generation. As we heard in the last episode, in 1935, the New South Wales government passed Ordinance 52, which strictly regulated beach swimwear. To obey the law, beachgoers wore the woolen spooner suit. This was a one piece with thigh length bottoms attached to a singlet style top. Spooner suits covered chests, waists, upper thighs and a good deal of the back. Looked at today, this swimwear is pretty ridiculous but it's not nearly as zany as the outfit's worn by another now obscure gang of miscreants who'd briefly appear at Bondi and who'd foreshadow the bodgies to follow. As Orb Laidlaw would later recall, quote, There used to be a mob called the Oxford Bag Boys. They wore trousers with 26-inch cuffs. Now that is a sinister style to boggle the mind. Regardless of how ridiculous they had to look, these blokes were supposedly very bad business indeed. But they'd be bested by Biffo, laid on by Orb Laidlaw, and the best of the Bondi Beach Brigade. As Orb remembered of the Oxford Bag Boys, quote, In packs of 20 or 30, they made a nuisance of themselves on the beach, molesting other swimmers and fighting. If they didn't leave when we told them, we just called some of the boys from the clubhouse and waded right into them. We didn't take any nonsense in those days. The Oxford bag boys were a short lived fad that overlapped with another rising breed surfers. After the great war riding waves had grown in popularity. One Bondi lad though stood out head and shoulders above the rest. This was Jack Mays who was born around 1923. He had red hair. So naturally he was nicknamed Bluey. Bluey was a good kid and he became a great surfer. At the end of January 1937, Bluey, then aged 14, was celebrated for risking his life to rescue a 10-year-old boy who'd been caught in a current. Bluey's heroics made newspapers nationally. Sydney's Daily Telegraph ran a photo of the tousle haired kid grinning proudly. Bluey told a reporter, I went in after Brian. He grabbed me and I went down. When he came up, I got a good hold of him the right way and swam in. Bluey told the reporter he was off to have a sunbake before he went home for tea. That was as much as he cared to say, adding, I'm not going to skite about it. Nine months later, Bluey's photo was in the Labour Daily. This time he was featured catching a ripper wave under the headline, What a day! Whenever there was a Sydney newspaper photo of this relatively new sport of surfing, there was a good chance that it would feature Bluey Mays and his mates. In the early 1940s, with Australia at war, Bondi Beach was patrolled, blocked with concrete barricades and fenced off with barbed wire. But that wasn't gonna put Bluey off. He'd sneak out for a surf and whenever he was caught, he'd get told off for putting himself at risk of being snatched by enemy submarines. Bluey soon really put himself at risk of such a fate. According to recollections in the 2013 book, Bondi Stories, Volume 1, Bluey joined the Australian Merchant Navy, but during shore leave in London, he wound up transferring to the American Merchant Navy before then signing on to the US Navy proper. Bluey worked aboard supply ships in the South Pacific during the war, and he got a lot of surfing in. He didn't get sunk and captured by an enemy sub, but he did soak up a lot of everything American. And this meant Bluey Maze was one of the first to catch the cultural wave that was about to break over Bondi and all of Australia. In December 1941, after the Japanese surprise attack on Pearl Harbor and other Pacific targets, Australia had, for the first time since white colonisation, been under direct threat of being attacked, invaded and conquered. Prime Minister John Curtin famously told Australians that we now look to America as an ally. Quote, free of any pangs as to our traditional links or kinship with the United Kingdom. From 1942 until 1945, Australians would host hundreds of thousands of American servicemen. And they brought with them a lot of new and very exciting things. Many young Australians embraced American ways of talking, dressing and partying. They did their best to imitate these visitors. Young Aussies chewed gum, spoke in hepcat lingo, and wanted to wear blue jeans and zoot suits. They coveted swing and jazz records, and when they went out dancing, they wanted to dance the jitterbug. Many older Australians hated all this non-Anglo nonsense, particularly when it was perceived to be tainted with the Negro influence. Not long after the end of the war, some young Aussie men started wearing their hair perhaps an inch longer than usual. They did this in imitation of handsome young Hollywood star, Cornel Wilde. Around this time, Bluey Mays came back home. While many Australians had met Americans, and many blokes had served alongside them, Bluey had actually been a lieutenant in the US Navy. Bluey was an early adopter of the Cornel Wilde look. Other Bondi boys followed, just as quickly as they could grow their hair. Yet at first, they were known both for their locks and for their socks. This new style spelled trouble. On the 6th of November, 1946, the Daily Telegraph reported that the forces of law and order were on the case. Quote, Specially picked police wearing bathing costumes will mingle with the crowd on Bondi Beach during the weekend. They will watch for hooligans who have been causing disturbances on the beach. The police will pay special attention to the North Bondi End, where a gang of about 30 youths, known as the long-haired Bobby Soxers, congregate. Long-haired bobby Soxes. As far as labels went, this was even less intimidating than big boy nuisance or Oxford bag boys. The Daily Telegraph report continued, These youths, who wear their hair to the nape of the neck, are increasing in number. They claim that they wear their hair the same as Cornel Wilde, the Hollywood film star. Recently, young women have complained to beach officials of the behaviour of these youths. Locals had already set out to show these miscreants that they couldn't defy a social convention without paying the price. Quote About a fortnight ago, a mob of youths from Paddington carrying razors and scissors raided the spot where the long haired youths congregate, but they were missing. The long haired Bobby Soxes had had a close shave with vigilante barbarism. Some ordinary decent Aussie blokes clearly felt threatened by the long hairs, not least because a lot of the lasses thought they were dreamy. As the Sun's headline read on the 24th of November, 1946, Girls fall for the Cornell Wild style. Quote, Girls say that the long-haired beach boys with the Cornell Wild haircuts are sharp enough to knock them pop-eyed. North Bondi surfboard riders who started the cult say that the style is spreading to all the beaches and has definitely caught on. The article said that at North Bondi alone, some 50 blokes had, quote, adopted the cult one long-haired disciple said there was a time when you had to be tough to get away with it but now apart from a few whistles people especially the girls like it girls who were interviewed said they thought the cornell wild boys which was how they'd soon be known had wonderful hair were stylish dresses and fabulous exponents of the jitterbug dance style the daily telegraph gave a detailed portrait of the markings of this species quote devotees of the cornell wild haircut wear white rolled down socks peg bottom pants rolled up to show the socks and portion of the leg hickok belts with silver buckles american style swagger shirts or draped sports coats and brogue shoes preferably two-toned peaks of shirt collars should be rabbit-eared leaving no one in any doubt who the local leader was one of the girls told the paper i wish you could see bluey he's the founder and he has the loveliest long red curls right down the back of his neck. A Daily Telegraph letter writer calling herself Sue City Sue agreed with all of her beating heart. Quote, My idea of a dream boy is the Cornell Wild type. You can have your moth-eaten hairdos and your conventional business suits. I'm for the boy with the white rolled-down socks and zoot pants. But there were many, many more who thought that Bluey and his brethren were idiots. And any girl who liked them needed a checkup from the neck up. Another Daily Telegraph correspondent railed quote, "The Bondi Beach morons who display ridiculous coiffures, o Cornell Wild, possibly appeal to their equally feeble-minded female counterparts. But to a person of normal intelligence, they are a pathetic sight. It is not necessary to be of exceptional perspicacity to notice the distinct resemblance they bear to our long-haired Simian ancestors." So the Cornell wild boys were cavemen. They were also dubbed teddy bears, billy goats, and long hairs. No doubt they were called much worse as well, but they weren't just hated for how they looked. They were hated for flaunting Ordinance 52, for not being members of the surf club, for riding their surfboards outside of prescribed areas at North Bondi, and for generally thumbing their noses at beach inspectors. In February, 1947, Truth newspaper ran a front page snap of these bare chested menaces. The headline, controversy raging on beaches. Beach inspector Orr Bladelaw warned that these surfers who were not licensed lifesavers were out of control and were injuring swimmers. In an interview, a spokesman for the Cornell wild boys, possibly Bluey Mays was quoted as saying that their critics were just jealous Jealous of their good looks, jealous of their great bodies, and jealous of their wave-riding skills that wowed all of Bondi's best beauties. He said, The cause of the trouble is because the goons of the surf club are getting jealous. They are gnashing what few teeth they have left because all the grouse sorts flock down the north end of the beach to see us. Only the drac sorts now watch the antics of the surf club's old men. For the record, Orb Laidlaw was then just 37. For all their differences, this young Cornell Wild boy and the old beach inspector had something unpleasant in common. They'd exhibit beach tribalism. Orb and other officials were quick to say that many, if not most, Ordinance 52 violators were non-locals and new Australians. Similarly, this Cornell Wild spokesman had plenty insulting to say about outsiders and immigrants. Quote, Some time ago, one of the newspapers made out that we were a team of show-offs with Buffalo Bill hairdos. What happened then? A bleating mob of sheep came to Bondi and tried to crowd us. We just shepherded those woolies right off our beach, quick smart. He went on. Then there are those refos. The refos, with their noses peeling painfully, want the beach to themselves. They've never seen a suntanned body or a surfboard racing through the foam and they run screaming up the beach, Elp, Elp! They cry with their loose European dentures, rattling like castanets. Waverley Council banned the Cornell Wild Boys. If you wanted to surf, you had to be a member of a surf club. But they weren't going to bow down to Bondi's old overlords. The war, over turf, over hair, over fashion, continued to rage in the newspaper letters pages. In a letter to the Daily Telegraph, someone calling himself Zeppelin Head said the Cornell Wild Boys could quote, Take a lesson from the bronze T-man lifesavers of Kooji, who wear their hair cropped close. It looks better and is cooler, cleaner and less trouble. A writer calling himself Sartarius agreed. Crew cuts were in. The bolder, the better. Especially back and sides because it, quote, gives the impression of cleanliness, vigour and masculinity. But a supporter calling himself 1947, not 1847, laid the smackdown to such critics, quote, Wherever the Cornell Wild Clan go, admiration is depicted on every intelligent person's face. This country is and will remain 25 years behind America while hillbillies like you exist. We're starting a new fashion, boy, and you'll never stop it. In February 1947, Orb Laidlaw spotted one of the Cornell Wild Clan catching a wave. He apprehended the lad and started to question him. From Orb's reputation, this wouldn't have been done in a gentle tone. Suddenly, though, the thong was on the other foot. Orb found himself surrounded by 35 of the man's mates. They were jeering, ridiculing, telling their buddy to keep his lip zipped and tell the old beach inspector nothing. Bluey May soon after told Truth newspaper that he and his mates weren't involved in such shenanigans, but they were copying it nevertheless and that this was a violation of their rights as citizens. Quote, All we want is a good surf, a sunny day and the freedom of the beach. Surfboard riding is an art which we have perfected, and we are better than any club member. We have been victimised because every man who is seen on the beach with a long hairdo is said to be one of us. They have broken regulations, and we have to suffer for their foolishness. But Waverley Council couldn't give a rat's. Bluey was banned from using his surfboard at Bondi for the rest of the summer season. Orbladelord justified such draconian action by saying he feared an eruption of violence. In March, he confronted two more rogue board riders. One lad refused to leave the water, and Orb grabbed him. The kid shouted, Murder! And caused a commotion as he was handed over to the manager of the council surf sheds. On that same afternoon, another lad was marched off the beach, swearing and fighting with Orb and another beach inspector, before he was handed to the police. But it had to be done, Orb said, because, Boards have knocked people's teeth out. Other people have had their limbs broken. This was a fair enough concern, except it seemed that long-haired surfers were being targeted, while surf club members were being given free passes. The impression of victimisation was deepened in April 1947, when 19-year-old Stanley Graham was charged with consorting in Paddington Court. Stanley Graham was described in the Sun's court report as, quote, an associate of the Cornell Wild surf riders whose activities had made it necessary to send special police to Bondi beach at weekends and on holidays. Reports had been received of thefts of clothing, bad behavior and interference with other people on the beach. On one occasion, they nearly caused a riot. The detective prosecuting said that if Stanley Graham stopped consorting with the gang, he might turn out all right. The lad was sentenced to three months, suspended and put on a good behavior bond of 20 pounds. But if he associated with the Cornell Wild Gang in the next year, he'd go to jail. This set a tone. Hang out with the Cornell Wild Boys, and the next step was crime, followed by the slammer. In the court, the detective had said that the accused had been seen wearing a swimming costume in company with men that included Leon Mays, Bluey's brother, who were all quote, reputed criminals. Reputed, not convicted. New South Wales's consorting laws were incredibly unfair. Having been introduced 20 years earlier to break up the razor gangs, they operated on the principle of guilt by association. The detective had told the court, quote, His associates are all hoodlums and came under notice of the police department as the Cornell Wild surfboard riders. Clearly, they were a terrible threat to society. Such a menace that by November of that year, the ban had been lifted. The Corneal Wild Boys, or at least fellas with longer hair, had swamped Bondi Beach in such numbers that resistance was useless. Off the beach, though, the Corneal Wild Boys could still turn heads and be deemed worthy of a press photograph. In a March 1949 feature about Sydney's youth, Smiths Weekly ran a picture of a group of them in King's Cross. The lads wore a variety of suit jackets. One was even bold enough not to wear a shirt and tie underneath, but a striped T-shirt. The photo caption called this queer garb, and by the standards of the day, it was. The hair, perhaps an inch longer than short back and sides, was deemed long. The caption concluded, Eccentricity in dress is all the vogue at the cross. But by then, there was a new name emerging for such eccentric young fellows. The first instance I found came on the 14th of January 1949 in the Sun's Sydney diary column which included a little piece about a support act at a concert in the city's tiny jazz scene. It noted that the band, Billy Weston's Bobcats had been put on the bill, quote, thrown in to satisfy those youngsters of the town in hip clothes and haircuts who call themselves bodgies.
1: This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it You can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.
0: As the 1940s became the 1950s, there'd be regular references to bodgies in the Sydney papers. A June 1950 report in Smith's Weekly quoted a 16-year-old girl named Gwen Wright, about jukeboxes being like a flame for the wrong kind of moths. She said, I've been in a milk bar with a jukebox and most of the boys were bodgies who came in from other districts. Bodgies are Australians who dress like American seamen, or wear tight fitting trousers, assume an American accent and sport a square haircut. They annoy everybody, including other teenagers, but we are all classed in the same age group. It should be noted here that the concept of a teenager had only really come into its own during the war years. The very concept of teenagers was revolting to many. Hence young Gwen not wanting to be tainted by these bloody new bodgies. But it turned out there were female versions of bodgies too. The Sun ran photos of the newly discovered female of the species, first called the Ouija's, who were, quote, asking for the ducktail haircut complete with sideburns. The paper went on weegis are the female teenage companions of the drape suit bebop addicts who haunt kings cross milk bars and call themselves bodgies these sort of explainer articles appeared in newspapers all across australia though there was a bit of frowning involved these fashions and hairstyles all seemed rather harmless then on the 10th of December, 1950, the Daily Telegraph ran that sensational report about bodgies and widgies involved in dance sex orgies at Bondi Beach. Suddenly, these kids were paragons of perversion, a vice that needed to be stamped out. How much of a beat-up was the Daily Telegraph report? What's amusing is that the single source quoted was Frank Jenkins, Bondi Beach lifesaver, and brother to the Daily Mirror's crime reporter, Bill Jenkins. The very next day, the Daily Mirror refuted the claims of the Daily Telegraph with an article headlined, Police report Bondi girls definitely not sex crazy. So, which Jenkins was right? It didn't really matter, because much like the Cornell Wild Boys beat up, the newspapers could play both angles. Sensational expose, followed by clear-headed rebuttal. Letters for and against bodgies and widgies flooded into the newspapers. Just over a week later, The Sun confidently ran a headline, Morals Probe of Bodgies, Court Story. This court story, which was about a 17-year-old who'd pled guilty to borrowing a truck and committing a break-and-enter, wouldn't have been in the least newsworthy except for the bodgie angle. He was a bad apple, and so the whole barrel of bodgies had to be rotten. Quote, Activities of the bodgie set were under thorough investigation by the police moral squad. This youth had, the court heard, been led into evil by his association with the bodgie brigade. Just like that 19-year-old a few years earlier had been lured into crime by his association with the Cornell Wild Gang. Quote, Detective North said the bodgie set was an imitation of a youthful American cult. Members wore broad-shouldered coats with nipped-in waists. Trousers with puffed hips and narrowed at the ankles. They affected a speech of American jargon and a corneal wild haircut. They wore short yellow socks and suede shoes. This story would be reprinted across the country under various headlines. In Brisbane, probe on bodgie's activities. Dubbo, police probe strange bodgie cult. Newcastle, bodgie club blamed for use lapse. Despite running a similar story and headline, the Sydney Morning Herald, at least in January 1951, infiltrated the scene to see for itself. Its expose was headlined, When a Bodgie meets a Widgie in a milk bar. The article began by summarizing Bondi lifesaver Frank Jenkins claims about the sex crazed Bondi cult and the detective story of the kid who'd been lured into crime by the Bodgies. This reporter then went to King's Cross to find bodgies in their natural habitat, a milk bar, escorted by a friend who knew about such things. This guide said, quote, But I warn you that if you're expecting anything sensational, you'll be disappointed. They're a pretty quiet lot, really. The reporter set the milk bar scene, quote, Near the entrance, two young men were standing beside a jukebox, listening to a record entitled, I'm a Ding Dong Daddy from Dumas. Elsewhere in the establishment, which they treated as a bit of a clubhouse, a place where everyone knew everyone, bodgies and widgies sat at tables and talked, like normal teenagers. Quote, There was none of the erotic atmosphere which the Bondi Lifesavers' outburst had led me to associate with the movement. Clothes, the reporter said, weren't standardized, except that none were expensive. Some bodgies, he said, were pale, weedy specimens, while a couple were big, burly young men. One widgie had a ring on her finger, another came in with two small children, and a bodgie bought ice cream for these kitties. The Herald's reporter observed, A generally cooperative spirit seemed to prevail. While saying he could only go by what he'd seen, he provided this conclusion, I can affirm that the decorous proceedings in this milk bar gave no support to the view that bodgies and widgies are a menace to society. They seem to be merely young people without much money, and not endowed with powerful intellects who are amusing themselves in a relatively harmless fashion. It is possible that some of them indulge in orgies or take to crime, but I doubt it. The enormous amount of soft drinks they consume must tend to inhibit activities of that kind. There has never yet, to my knowledge, been an authentic case of a youth who committed a violent offence while maddened by pineapple ice cream soda. The following month, February 1951, the Sydney Morning Herald reported on the largest yet gathering of bodgies and widgies. Not at some Bondi Beach orgy pit, but instead at the Sydney Town Hall. There were 2,000 attendees, many of them escorted by their parents. This was the Bodgy and widgee Jazz Jamboree, the first event of its kind. A spokesman for the organization told the Herald that the association's aims included providing healthy and wholesome activities for young people. There will be music and sport, football, cricket, baseball and basketball, and also social gatherings. They also wanted to counter recent unsavory publicity. To this end, he said... The Bodgie and Widgie Association intends to prove to all critics that its members are true, loyal Australians and that the morals and behaviour of every member are beyond reproach. The Herald reported that the Jazz Jamboree was a success. A fine time was had by all, and, quote, At the conclusion of the programme, the Bodgies and Widgies rose and sang the national anthem. But stories like this didn't really sell tabloid newspapers. 2,000 well behaved bodgies and widgies weren't worth one who misbehaved. So, threat stories would continue to dominate. Such beat ups didn't just boost circulation, they might have actually contributed to hate crimes being committed against bodgies and widgies. Truth, in May 1952, ran a feature with a photo of the bodgy and widgie type. The picture showed five men wearing loose suits, ties and jackets with one similarly neatly dressed woman among their number. The menace? That came from their eyes being covered with black bars, making them all look like criminals. The headline read, Moral misfits in comic clothes are becoming a public menace. So far, it was just the usual sensationalism. But readers were about to be subjected to a torrent of bile. Truth's staff investigator began his report, quote, The Bodji cult in Australia is the most freakish and sinister youth movement since the old days of the razor pushes. In Sydney, it is causing police much anxiety. Its members disgust decent living and decent thinking people. One Bodji is serving a life sentence. Another is facing a long term of jail. Innumerable vicious assaults and car thefts have been sheeted home to this bizarre cult's hoodlums. The article explained that bodgies looked down on regular workers as being square. But on the other hand, they coveted fancy clothes and fancy haircuts. So they turned to crime to support their habits. Quote, "...starting with petty theft, often ending with blackmailing, perversion, and other shocking offences. Thus, a fancy haircut on a youth has led, step by step, to a major headache for sections of the community." Truth explained that bodgies had evolved from the Cornell Wild Boys, which the paper dated to 1948. What it didn't tell readers, though some surely knew, was that the Cornell Wild Boys' leader, Bluey Mays, had, since shortly after 1948, been the captain of the Tamarama Life Saving Club. Bluey Mays had saved plenty of lives. He was also regarded as the best surfer in the country. So how to reconcile this outcome with bodgies as being juvenile delinquent criminals who sooner or later would end up behind bars? Truth didn't bother with such inconvenient contradictions. Rather, the paper described how bodgies drank bodgie blood, which was a sinister concoction of raspberry syrup and soda water. If you've ever ordered a child a fire engine in a pub, then you've got the idea. Truth also sought comment from a hard-boiled veteran detective who said the bodgies were so bad they made him almost nostalgic for the Oxford bag boys from back in the day. You know, the ones we heard about, who'd wear those big trouser cuffs and supposedly molest Bondi surf bathers until Orb Laidlaw and his mates bashed them off the beach. Truth then took up this very same approach as being appropriate to the bodgies. It put it this way, quote, Virile young Australians of the same age resent the moronic bodgies. In many cases, they have not hesitated to back up such resentment with physical disapproval. Truth wasn't just reporting vigilante leanings, it was inciting them. The paper told readers that many bodgies were immigrants, new Australians, and that they were perverts, homosexuals, and thus deserving of violence. Quote, today many bodgies are apprehensive, startled, and pained for bodgie hunting is now not unknown to certain masculine young men who look with disgust on effeminate and unnatural species of males. Australia does not desire the types of perversion being transplanted here by scum from portions of Europe. Bluntly speaking, many members of the bodgie cult are perverts, sexually and mentally. They have no place in decent society. Small wonder that clean-thinking young Australian men should wish to clean them up. I don't think it's a stretch to draw a straight line from this sort of incitement to the assault of immigrants and homosexual men. We simply don't know the sort of effect such words had on those reading them. Truth declared, the time has come to clear Sydney's atmosphere of bodgies. They pollute the moral atmosphere of the community. They are un-Australian in influence, but it wasn't just Sydney that needed cleaning up. The bodgie panic soon spread across Australia. Here's a sample of headlines. Brisbane Telegraph, 22nd of May, 1954. Brisbane's bodgie cult is an invitation to crime. Truth, Sydney, 27th of June, 1954. Police uncover wild sex orgies. Truth, Brisbane, 11th of July, 1954. Confessions of a former Brisbane bodgie tells where wild orgies are staged in city suburbs. The Sun, Sydney. 17th of September, 1954. Wicked thing. Judge declares, wipe out cult of bodgies. Mirror, Perth, 9th of April, 1955. Widgie cult, a social menace. Adelaide hits back. While this would continue for years, it's good to remember that bodgies and widgies could only be media monsters for so long until they became passe. Years passed, and bodgies and widgies hadn't destroyed Western civilization. But that was all right because they could be replaced by the threat posed by rockers and rollers, who then yielded to beatniks and bikies, hippies and sharpies, punks and metalheads, rappers and ravers. The lesson here? Seemingly strange subcultures come and go, but media panic merchants will always be with us. Are there any bad eggs in any given basket? Sure there are. Were there bad bodgies and wicked widgies? No doubt. But most, almost all, were harmless youth. And those bodgies and widgies so feared in the 1950s, are now the most senior of our senior citizens. Next time you see yours, why not ask mum or dad, grandmother or grandfather, great-grandmother or great-grandfather, a question along the lines of, hey, back in the 1950s, were you a blackmailing car thief who broke up your crime sprees with wild sex orgies? If the answer is yes, please get in touch because I'd love to feature them in an interview. So what became of Jack Bluey Mays, a granddaddy, if not the granddaddy of the bodgie movement? As stated, he was captain of Tamarama's Surf Lifesaving Club and later became its president. In December 1958, Bluey was pictured with other Cornell Wild era board riders not in truce crime pages, but in a colour photo in the wholesome pages of the Australian Women's Weekly. The boys were all lined up in their colourful togs with their big boards, and the headline read, Hot Doggers of the Surf. Five years later, Bluey was in the Sunday Telegraph, not being decried as the high priest of a sex-crazed cult, but as co-editor of the popular new surfing section. Skip ahead nearly quarter of a century to May 1986, and there was Bluey in the Sydney Morning Herald. His red hair was now white. He was 61 years old, but looked fighting fit, holding a surfboard, standing in front of the van that he called home down on Bondi Beach. The headline read, Surfing's Peter Pan. Bluey still worked as a taxi driver, just as he had in the 1940s after returning from the war. He drove on weekends so he could surf during the week. He was quoted as saying, as long as I can stand up, I'll keep surfing. That's what Bluey Mays did. He passed away in September 1997. He was remembered then by the Sydney Morning Herald as Bondi's all-time surfing legend. Not bad for a one-time minister society and a man who might have laid claim to the title King of the Bodgies. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or review at Apple Podcasts. As always, thanks for listening.
1: This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it.